All right, let's open to Hebrews again this morning. And we'll read four passages to begin with this morning, starting in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 4. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Two more, Hebrews 7, verse 17. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here, verse 17. For it is attested of Him, that is Jesus, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And the last one in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jim Kelly, would you pray for us? Amen. Well, we come this morning then to the third message in our four-part series on stopping spiritual drift. And we began once again this morning with that exhortation from Hebrews chapter 2. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so that warning applies to every single person here this morning who professes to be a believer. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Christianity is not mechanical or automatic. It's not simply about putting your money into the machine, pulling the lever, and out comes your piece of candy. It doesn't work that way. Repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is simply the beginning of a race to be run. It's the beginning of a voyage to be made. And Christ Himself said in Matthew 24 that it is those and only those who endure to the end who will be saved. Far from being mechanical or automatic, there is an absolute necessity for perseverance and endurance in the Christian life. There's an absolute necessity for endurance, not only because the voyage that we're on is long, but because the voyage is full of opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The moment you believe the gospel and set out on this voyage to the kingdom of God, the moment you believe, there is opposing forces that are at work seeking to destroy you. There is opposing forces that are blowing and pushing and pulling you backwards, and if you simply fall asleep at the wheel, those forces will cause you to drift off course. And unless you wake up and do something about it, you will continue to drift slowly and gradually 
until you crash. And again, that's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander there. Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1, it's, he says they suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. They kept on drifting until they finally crashed and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. So how then can we stop spiritual drift? How can we keep from drifting? Well, we began to answer that question last week by considering a phrase from Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus or literally looking to Jesus. One of the ways that we stop spiritual drift is by looking to Christ, fixing our eyes on Christ. Robert Murray McShane said that for every one look that we take at ourselves, we should take ten looks at Christ. That's a pretty good ratio. Every one look at ourselves, ten looks to Christ. And as we saw last week, this looking is not a physical seeing with the eyes of our head, but it's a spiritual seeing with what Paul calls the eyes of our heart. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Now, how can you see things that are not seen? Well, you see them with spiritual eyes, the eyes of your heart. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Now, how does this spiritual seeing take place? Well, it happens as we hear or read the Word of God. And as I said last time, the key to looking to Jesus spiritually is hearing the Word of God physically. And we considered a few passages last week that make this connection between physical hearing and spiritual seeing. One of them that we looked at was from there in Galatians 3. Where Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Well, they weren't there on the day that Christ was crucified. They never saw him physically. But Paul goes on to talk about how when he was preaching and they believed what he was preaching, the hearing of faith, they heard, they believed, they saw spiritually the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happens when everyone, everyone who's ever converted has that revelation of Christ. But the bottom line then is that if we're going to fix our eyes on Christ in order to stop spiritual drift, we're going to have to open our Bibles. So simple, but so basic. Trying to look to Jesus apart from Scripture is like trying to look at a picture when all you have is an empty frame. You can't do it. If there's no picture there to see, you can't see the picture. You can't look at a picture that isn't there. And as Christians, the place that we are to go in order to find pictures of Christ to look at is the Bible. And as another person said, I quoted this last week, God has chosen in this age to reveal Himself to the world mainly through the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, by means of the written Word, the Bible. So God reveals Himself in the person of His Son, and the person of His Son is revealed to us in Scripture. A few weeks ago, Dick pointed out that when the Bible talks about Jesus' transfiguration, it uses the word metamorphosis, the word that we get our word metamorphosis from when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, metamorphosis. In the transfiguration, Jesus experienced a metamorphosis. Well, there's a metamorphosis that's also taking place in the life of every Christian. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Notice what he says. Beholding. What's beholding? Seeing. You're seeing something spiritually. Beholding as in a mirror, what are you seeing? The glory of the Lord. And we're being what? We're being transformed. It's the same word that it's used about Jesus' transfiguration. We're being transformed. We're being metamorphosized into the same image transformed into the image of Christ, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So as the believer beholds or looks to the glory of Christ, they are transformed into His image and likeness. And where is it that we behold the glory of the Lord? Well, it's in the Scriptures. As we hear His words, as we read about His works, as we hear about His grace and His love, we're transformed. It's as we hear physically read physically, that we see Jesus spiritually. And seeing His glory causes a metamorphosis in our lives, and we begin to be more and more transformed into His image, into His likeness, into His character. But not only that, it's also as we behold His glory that we are kept from drifting away from Him. And as I said last time, the beauty of Christ is itself magnetic. 
It attracts you. It woos you. It keeps you. You don't want to leave it. If a person's mind and heart has been captivated by the glory of Christ, then drifting is conquered. Simply trusting Thee, Lord Jesus, I behold Thee as Thou art, as Thou art, and Thy love so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. And a satisfied heart is a steadfast heart. A person who is satisfied in Christ is not going to be drifting away from Christ because their satisfaction is in Him. All right, well, what we want to do this morning then is consider another phrase from the book of Hebrews that's related to this thing of stopping spiritual drift, and that's the phrase, let us draw near. And we read it several times here at the beginning of the message. The believers in the book of Hebrews were in danger of drifting away from the gospel. So how does the author of Hebrews encourage them to press on? How does he encourage them to remain steadfast? He does so by exhorting them to draw near to God. Let us draw near. And I said in the first message in this series that one of the primary causes of spiritual drift is prayerlessness. And in the same way, one of the primary cures for spiritual drift is prayer. How many times have we experienced drifting in our own lives that was stopped by prayer? I mentioned a couple weeks ago about the, the way that the, the Lord has used the prayer meeting in my own life. How many times have I gone to that prayer meeting just feeling dead and dull and not wanting to be there, and yet you go... Sometimes just by force of will you go. But by the time you're done, there's that sense of God's presence, that sense of His nearness and that desire to want to press on. Drifting was, was stopped. Simply taking the time to get before God, confess our need, and receive from Him. Look again in Hebrews 4. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, encouraging them, hold fast your confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A time of drifting in your life is a time of need. And what you need when you are drifting is you need mercy and grace. Mercy to cleanse you from your sin of drifting and grace to lift you up and strengthen you for the journey ahead. And both of those things, mercy and grace, he says here, are received from God when we draw near to His throne. If you need mercy and grace, that's where you're going to have to get it. You're not going to get it anywhere else. You've got to draw near. Now, notice here just a few general observations. First of all, the emphasis, at least here, I think in Hebrews, the emphasis is on drawing near in order to receive grace for our own souls. Now, prayer for others is important. Intercessory prayer, I mean, we could talk about that forever. It's all over Scripture. It's extremely important. But we won't be able to effectively pray for others if our own hearts are not receiving the mercy and grace that they need to keep near to God. And so I think here in the book of Hebrews especially, when he talks about drawing near, he's primarily thinking about drawing near in order to receive mercy and grace in our own lives and to stop the drifting that's taking place in our own lives first and foremost. Secondly, notice here that there's activity involved on our part. Let us draw near. Simply hearing about prayer, talking about prayer, listening to sermons about prayer, or reading books and articles about prayer is not going to cut it. You actually have to pray. And see, the thing is, is a lot of times you can hear people talk about prayer, or you can hear a really good sermon about prayer, and it's almost like you feel like you've prayed after you've heard it. But you haven't, you see. You haven't even prayed yet. You still have to pray. I mean, if I want to catch a fish for dinner... I mean, I can read books about fishing, and I can listen to people talk about fishing, but unless I get out there and fish, I'm not going to have anything to eat. Eventually, you've got to get out there and cast the pole. And it's the same thing with prayer. Eventually, you've got to get out there and just pray. Simply reading about it is good. Hearing sermons about it, good. I heard an excellent one of the I put it up on our blog. One of the best sermons I've heard in a long time on prayer was from Ryan Fullerton, pastor there in Louisville from Daniel talking from Daniel 9, I think it was, talking about how prophecy fuels prayer. It was phenomenal. Really good message. I would encourage you to listen to that. But again, 
after you've heard the message, you still haven't prayed yet. <laughs> you've got to pray. There's responsibility there. There's activity on our part. Thirdly, notice here how the author does not simply tell the Hebrew believers to pray. He doesn't say pray. He tells them to draw near. In fact, the book of Hebrews is full of teaching about prayer, but the word pray is only used one time in the entire book. It's interesting. And the reason for that is because the author of this letter uses other words and phrases to talk about prayer, and one that he uses a lot is this thing of draw near. Let us draw near. Rather than simply tell them to pray, he tells them to draw near. Why? Why use that phrase? Why use that terminology? And that's what I want us to spend a little more time on this morning for the bulk of the message. Why in the book of Hebrews is there this constant refrain of draw near? I mean, it runs like a scarlet thread through the entire book. You have chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 10, over and over again. Draw near, draw near, draw near. Why? Why not just tell them to pray? Why not just tell them that they need to pray? Why use that terminology of drawing near? And in answering that question, we'll not only understand the book of Hebrews better, but we ourselves, Lord willing, will be encouraged to pray. And isn't that really what we need as Christians here this morning? I mean, if you're a Christian here this morning, you already know you need to pray. That's not the problem. The problem is motivation. How can I want to pray? How can I be encouraged to pray? How can I grow in my desire to pray? Those are the questions. And by considering this thing of drawing near, I hope that we can at least begin to address some of those struggles. So if stopping spiritual drift involves drawing near, then we need to know what drawing near means. We need to know what the book of Hebrews has to say about drawing near. So that's what we want to consider now. Now, a little bit of background here. First of all, remember that these believers, these drifting believers in the book of Hebrews, had come from a Jewish background. They were former Jews who had come out of Judaism. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were now in danger of going back to being Jews because of the persecutions that they were suffering. But the point here that I want to make is that these believers in Hebrews would have known their Old Testaments very, very well. And that's the reason why throughout the book of Hebrews, I mean, have you ever wondered why there's so many Old Testament quotes and illustrations in the book of Hebrews? Well, that's why. Because he's dealing with Hebrew Christians, he's dealing with former Jews who knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so he's appealing to them from the Old Testament in order to encourage them to remain faithful. He's constantly going back to the Old Testament to show how the New Covenant is superior to the Old Covenant, how Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant priests and the Old Covenant sacrifices and so on. And so when the author tells these believers to draw near, he's really bringing out another one of these contrasts between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, we can and we must draw near to God. In contrast to that, the basic message given to the Jews under the Old Covenant was the exact opposite of that. Stay away. Do not come near. Stay away. And let's go back to the Old Testament so we can see this for ourselves. See, he didn't have to give all this background to these Hebrew believers because they already knew all of this. And so he can say, draw near, and that would have triggered something in their mind that was phenomenally significant. But for us, we need to go back and feel the weight of this before we'll appreciate what it means to draw near. So go back to Exodus, chapter 19. You might recall that in Exodus tells us about how God had brought His people, the Israelites, out of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, it says. And after bringing them out of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai about a month and a half later after they were brought out of Egypt. And then we'll pick it up there in Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. All right, so God is, God's presence is on the mountain. He goes up to God 
And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Now really, we should read through this entire section, but I don't want to take the time to do that. But let's look at a few things here. Skip down to verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. A thick cloud. In other words, he's obscuring himself. A thick cloud. Can't see him. Skip down to verse 12. Again, God is speaking to Moses. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So again, stay away. Don't even touch the mountain. Verse 16. It came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp Did what? Rejoiced? No, trembled. Fear. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. I mean, again, this is a terrifying sight. Dick talked about a volcano this morning. I mean, this you see a volcano, you're, you're getting out of there. I mean, you're running the other direction. And that's what they were seeing, basically. The mountain was shaking and trembling violently. Verse 21, a couple more here. Verse 21, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Do not break through to look. You know, Don't get curious and try to break through and look, or you're going to die. That's what he's saying. Again, verse 24. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or He will break forth upon them. Fearful thing. Stay away. Now the message is obvious here, isn't it? What is He teaching them and what is He teaching us in this passage? Well, first of all, He's teaching us that being near to God is a fearful thing. All the people in the camp trembled when they saw this sight. I mean, imagine what that would have been like. You know, a few weeks ago we had that storm, one of those that night that we had the tornado siren go off. And I mean, I can't remember seeing a storm that had that much lightning, just one after another, and the thunder. And I mean, it was fearful to just even look outside. You're in your house, you're safe from that stuff, but it's still fearful just to even be inside looking out at it. There's a sense of how small you are and how, how easily you can, you can perish in that. It's a fearful thing. Imagine what it would have been like for them to see that mountain all in smoke. The second lesson God's teaching them is that a holy God must remain separate from sinful human beings. He comes to them in a thick cloud wrapped in smoke. Boundaries were set around the mountain so that no one would even attempt to come close. If they did, they were put to death. And we might think that's a little harsh, but again, God is teaching them something here. He's teaching them about His holiness, that His eyes are too pure to look upon evil, that you cannot draw near to a holy God and live. The result will be death. Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Necessarily, it has to be that way because of God's holiness. So the next thing then that happens in Exodus is the giving of the law, including the Ten Commandments and all these other laws and regulations that would guide Israel as a nation. And many of those regulations had to do with the building of the tabernacle, the design of the tabernacle. You see, Moses didn't just make up the design of the tabernacle. He got it from God himself. It was a divine design. And the very design of the tabernacle itself was meant to teach the people about how they would relate to God. And there were various temples and things that were built after the tabernacle throughout Israel's history, but all of them had the same design. started with the tabernacle, and every temple after that continued to have the same design. And in order to illustrate this, don't laugh at my skills, 
but this is basically, if you're kind of looking down on the tabernacle, this is basically what it would have looked like. Um, it's pretty bad, I know, but you can get the general idea. Uh, you, you would have had, the entrance would have been over here, and this would have all been covered. I mean, it's, it would have had a top on it. It's like a big tent, basically, a big rectangular tent. And you have the entrance over here. And then you come inside the actual tabernacle complex. You have the outer courts here, and then you have another building that's inside of the tabernacle. And inside of that building, you have another entrance there to go into the building. The first part that you come into is the holy place inside that next building inside there. And then you have what was, what was called the veil, which was basically a big, thick curtain that hung down right here that divided the holy place from the next part in, which was the holy of holies, the most holy place. And inside of that holy of holies was what was called the Ark of the Covenant, or sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony. It was a box that contained the law. And on top of that box, the Ark of the Covenant, you had what was called the mercy seat. And it was there on that mercy seat that God said that he would especially manifest his presence among the nation of Israel. Exodus 25, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you. And so again, what is God teaching here? Even with the very design of the tabernacle, he's teaching about his holiness and our sinfulness. You see, he cuts himself. God says, I'm going to manifest my presence here, right? He cuts himself off from everybody else. See, there's a curtain here that cuts him off. Then you have this separate place here, then another outer court, and then go all the way outside, and every, the people are all around this thing. God is sequestered here in the center. He's cutting himself off from everyone. Sinful humanity cannot come near to a holy God. But maybe, perhaps it wasn't so bad. I mean, maybe the average Jew could at least come in, you know, and kind of come into this part of the tabernacle. Could they? Could the average Jew go into that part of the tabernacle? No. In order to even get into this part, that very outer part of the tabernacle, in order to even get into that part, you had to be a priest. And in order to be a priest, you had to be a male, first of all, so automatically females are out, right? You had to be a male. You had to be from Aaron's line, from Aaron's lineage, and you had to do all of these ceremonial washings and wear special clothes and all this kind of stuff. All right, well, let's say you were a priest, all right? So you're one of the lucky ones and you are a priest. Well, what then? Well, even if you were a priest, I should have just held this thing the whole time. Even if you were a priest, you had to stay in the outer part of the tabernacle here and then here in the holy place. That was as far in as you could get for 364 days out of the year. So even if you were a priest for 364 days out of the year, this is as close as you got to the presence of God. All right? Now, there was one day a year that was different. For one priest, the high priest, there was one day out of the entire year that was different, and that was the Day of Atonement, what was called the Day of Atonement. One day out of the entire year when a single person finally got to go in and be near to God, approach God, one day out of the whole year, allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and that was the Day of Atonement. And it's described in Leviticus 16, uh, and we won't turn there because I think most of you are probably familiar with that section. But one day a year, the high priest would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and what would he do? He would take blood and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, and he would make atonement for, he would pay for, the sins of the people, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. And as a result of that sprinkling there in Leviticus 16, God tells the people, you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So one day a year, the high priest goes alone, again, a single person goes alone through the veil into the Holy of Holies in order to sprinkle blood on that mercy seat to pay for, to atone for the sins of the people, making them clean before God. All right, now get this, this is the point. Under the Old Covenant, only one person was allowed to draw near to God, and that one person was allowed to draw near to God for a matter of a few minutes, one day out of the entire year. And that was it. And yet you come to the book of Hebrews, and what do you hear over and over again? 
Draw near. Draw near. Draw near. Why? What has changed? Why is there this big discrepancy between the Old Covenant when one person could go in for a few minutes one day out of the whole year, and then you come to the book of Hebrews and it's draw near over and over again? What changed is that 2,000 years ago, the real Day of Atonement came. 2,000 years ago, the great high priest, not just the high priest, but what is called the great high priest there in Hebrews 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, went through the veil and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat to pay for the sins of His people. Only it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats, but it was His own blood that was shed. Turn to Hebrews 9. Let's read about it here. Now again, keeping that background in mind of the Day of Atonement, the high priest going in, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat once a year to pay for the sins of the people. Now, what does it say about Jesus? Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Skip down to verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, with blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See, Christ didn't enter into some man-made temple or some man-made tabernacle. He entered into heaven itself to sprinkle His blood. It was a divine sacrifice. For Christ did not enter a holy place, verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not His own. Otherwise, He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. See, every year that high priest had to go back in. Every year, every year, sprinkle blood. What does it say about Jesus? But now, once... At the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So under the Old Covenant, year after year, the blood of bulls and goats was sprinkled. Christ comes once and puts away sin once for all by the sacrifice of Himself. And after He had put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself, an amazing thing happened talks about in Matthew 27 and in the other Gospels. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So this veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, Christ dies, yields up His Spirit. It is finished, He cries. And this veil is torn in two from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies is laid bare. It's exposed. It's open. Now, maybe there just happened to be somebody there when Christ died and they kind of gave the the veil a good tear right as Jesus was dying. No, it says it was torn from top to bottom. Specifically says that. Not from bottom to top. From top to bottom it was torn. Well, maybe it wasn't a very strong veil. Maybe it was like one of those sheer kind of curtains that you buy for your windows. No, this thing was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. 4 inches thick. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who said that this thing was so thick that you could tie horses on either side of it and they would not be able to rip it. That's how strong this veil was. I mean, what is God saying? Tearing this veil in two from top to bottom. It's a supernatural tearing. Supernaturally torn in two because God wanted everyone to know that access into His presence was now open to all people everywhere for all time. No more priests, no more sacrifices, no more Day of Atonement. It is finished. That's the lesson. 
You see, the only thing that can keep you from God's presence is your sin. That's the only thing that keeps a person from God is sin. And God has dealt with that sin once for all by the death of His Son. The veil has been torn in two from top to bottom. You don't need a veil any longer when the final sacrifice has been made. Hebrews chapter 10. What's the result? Hebrews 10, verse 19. Now again, keep that background in mind. Think of what he says here to these these struggling Hebrew believers. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how in the world could you have confidence knowing that you're going to be going into the very place where God's presence is? I mean, when he came down on the mountain there under the old covenant, people were trembling. And yet he's saying, have confidence. You can have confidence when you go to his presence. It's amazing. We have confidence, why? To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. You see, when that veil was torn, it was a symbol of Christ's flesh being torn, dying for sin. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You see, not just one person, Everybody, every Christian, let us draw near, everyone, draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Again, no more trembling, no more weeping, no more being afraid at God's presence. Draw near with full assurance. And remember, these these believers here in Hebrews were not at the apex of their spiritual lives at this point. They're drifting away, you see. And yet he's still telling them, you can have assurance to draw near to God even in the midst of your drifting. If you'll just come back, draw near. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, the blood of Christ cleanses a person's conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. I think he's speaking there of regeneration. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, notice some of these contrasts here. Under the Old Covenant, access was limited to Levitical priests. Those were the only people who had access to the presence of God. That was it. Now, full access is granted to every Christian. Therefore, brethren, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, all brethren, every brother. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how you feel at the moment. It doesn't matter whether you've had a really good quiet time today. You see, it's an objective fact. The veil is torn in two. It doesn't matter. You go, you come, you draw near. The veil never gets put back up again. Torn in two from top to bottom. And no one's going to sew that thing back together. Under the Old Covenant, access was limited to once a year. Now we can have access whenever we please. The only thing, again, the only thing that keeps us from the throne of grace is ourselves. That's the only thing that keeps you. Your sin doesn't keep you from the throne of grace. You go to the throne of grace with your sin to get it taken care of. To receive mercy, he says. You don't need mercy if you don't have any sin. Mercy only takes place in the presence of sin. You go to the throne of grace to receive mercy for your sins. We need to go as often as we need to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Under the old covenant, paralyzing fear accompanied entering into God's presence. I can guarantee you that that high priest who went through that veil on the Day of Atonement was not walking in there with his head held high. That guy was trembling with fear. In fact, there's a... There's a a Jewish... It's kind of a myth because we don't know for sure if this is accurate, but... Uh, it's been told that the high priest, when he went into that that veil through the veil on the Day of Atonement, would actually wear bells on his clothing. And the reason why he did that is because the people outside would tie a rope to him, and they would hold on to that rope as he went into, into that veil. And if they heard the bells stop ringing, they knew that God had killed him. And so they'd have to pull him back out. And so, again, I can guarantee you that, that when that high priest went into that veil, he wasn't just sauntering in there with his head held high. He was fearing, trembling, worried for his own life. Paralyzing fear went along with entering into God's presence. Again, because you're a sinner, you can't go into God's presence. He's holy. But now we can go with confidence 
That's what it says here. Let us enter in with confidence, with assurance, full assurance of faith. I mean, imagine telling that to a converted Jew. Imagine telling a converted Jew that he could now enter in behind the veil and do it with confidence and with assurance. But forget about a converted Jew. What about you? Do you feel like you can enter in with confidence? Do you have assurance? Despite your sins, can you go? The sin's been dealt with, you see. Once for all, the veil's been torn in two. If your sins can keep you from the presence of God, then it was your own righteousness that got you there in the first place. In fact, it's when we've sinned that we need most to draw near to God. I like this quote from Octavius Winslow on this point. I thought it was really good. read it a few years ago. Here's what he said. He said, Learn to take your guilt as it comes and your corruption as it rises directly and simply to Jesus. Do not allow the guilt of sin to remain long upon the conscience. The moment there is the slightest consciousness of a wound received, take it to the blood of Christ. The moment a mist dims the eye of faith so that you cannot see clearly the smile of your Father's face, take it that instant to the blood of atonement. Let there be no distance between God and your soul. Sin separates, but sin immediately confessed, mourned over, and forsaken brings God and the soul together in sweet, close, and holy fellowship. Oh, the oneness of God and the believer in the sin-pardoning Christ, who can know it? Only he who has experienced it. To cherish, then, the abiding sense of this holy, loving oneness, the believer must build his house in the fountain, fountain of Christ's blood. He must wash daily in the bronze laver that is outside the holy place. All right, he's using the figure of the tabernacle here. He must wash daily in the bronze laver that is outside the holy place. Then, entering in within the veil, he may draw near to the mercy seat and ask whatever he will of him that dwells between the cherubim. Again, it's when you sin that you need most to go to him. A couple of more of these contrasts. Under the old covenant, they entered God's presence with a guilty conscience because they knew that their sins were not really being taken care of. If they were being taken care of, they wouldn't have had to continue to do it year after year. And the book of Hebrews makes that point in chapter 9 and chapter 10. But now we can enter in with a clean conscience because our sins have been removed once for all. No more consciousness of sins, it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It doesn't mean you don't know that you sin. It's talking about no more consciousness of sin in terms of God's wrath needing to be satisfied. When you go to God now, you don't go as a criminal goes to a judge. You go as a, as a child goes to a father. You can have a clean conscience in terms of a criminal having their sins paid for. It's gone. Never have to worry about approaching God as a guilty criminal ever again. We relate to Him as a child to a father. Under the Old Covenant, strict requirements had to be met in order to enter God's presence. Again, you had to be a male. You had to be from Aaron's lineage. You had to do these ceremonial washings, wear special clothing, take these vows. Now, all of the requirements have been met by Christ. Now, this is something. You are no less worthy to enter into God's presence than Christ Himself is. Because when you enter into His presence, you enter in in Christ. You go in His name. You go in His righteousness. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. What's the result? Bold I approach the eternal throne. Bold, you see. Confidence, assurance, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Well, in closing then, again, the exhortation this morning, if you're currently drifting away from the Lord or if you want to keep yourself from drifting away from the Lord, the exhortation is, let us draw near. 
let us draw near to receive the mercy and the grace that we need in times of, of difficulty, that we need in times of struggle, that we need when we've messed up. Go. Draw near. Go. Get what you need from Him. He's glorified by meeting your needs, you see. He's glorified by dispensing mercy and dispensing grace. So go. Draw near to Him. Well, I wanted to end here with something. And I wasn't real sure where to put it, so I tacked it on at the end. I said a couple weeks ago that there's one thing in the Christian life that I don't have a handle on. It's prayer. And I'm sure like others here, prayerlessness is a, is a, a struggle for me. But I've been really helped at different times by this, this article by Andrew Murray, who was a Dutch Reformed believer, uh, ministered in South Africa in the late 1800s. Andrew Murray. Uh, it's about one page, and normally I wouldn't read something this long, but it's so good, and I think it'll be helpful to people um, as we close here. So this is called Conquering Prayerlessness by Andrew Murray. It's from his book, The Prayer Life, that he wrote in, in 1920. So I guess it was late 1800s, early 1900s is when he was ministering. The greatest stumbling block in the way of victory over prayerlessness is the secret feeling that we shall never obtain the blessing of being delivered from it. And that's quite a way to start. The greatest stumbling block in the way of victory over prayerlessness is the secret feeling that we shall never obtain the blessing of being delivered from it. Never going to change. Nothing's going to change. Often we have put forth effort in this direction, but in vain. Old habit and the power of the flesh, our surroundings with their attractions, have been too strong for us. What good is it to attempt that which our heart assures us is out of our reach? Do you really long for the courage to believe that deliverance from a prayerless life is possible for you and may become a reality? Then you must learn the great lesson that such a deliverance is included in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that it is one of the blessings of the new covenant which God himself will impart to you through Jesus Christ. As you begin to understand this, you will find that the exhortation, pray without ceasing, conveys a new meaning. Hope begins to spring up in your heart that the Spirit who has been bestowed on you to cry constantly, Abba, Father, will make a true life of prayer possible for you. Then you will hearken, not in the spirit of discouragement, but in the gladness of hope to the voice that calls you to repentance. Many a person has turned to his inner chamber under bitter self-accusation that he has prayed so little and has resolved for the future to live in a different manner. I mean, haven't you experienced that? You, you, you want to draw near to God, and so you draw near to Him, and, and all you hear are these accusations. It's like, what are you doing here? I mean, you haven't prayed at all hardly this week, and yet you think you're going to come? Bitter self-accusations that you've prayed so little. And you resolve to live differently. I'm going to change. I'm going to get better in this. Yet no blessing has come. There was not the strength to continue faithful, and the call to repentance had no power because your eyes had not been fixed on the Lord Jesus. If only if this person, if he had only understood, he would have said, Lord, you see how cold and dark my heart is. I know that I must pray, but I feel I cannot do so. I lack the urgency and desire to pray. That person did not know that at that moment the Lord Jesus in His tender love was looking down upon him and saying, You cannot pray. You feel that all is cold and dark. Why not give yourself over into My hands? Only believe that I am ready to help you in prayer. I long greatly to shed abroad My love in your heart so that you in the consciousness of your weakness may confidently rely on Me to bestow the grace of prayer. Just as I will cleanse you from all other sins, so also will I deliver from the sin of prayerlessness. Only do not seek the victory in your own strength. Bow before me as one who expects everything from his Savior. Let your soul keep silence before me, however sad you feel your state to be. Be assured of this, I will teach you how to pray. Just a little bit more. Hearing the Lord's words, many a person will acknowledge... I see my mistake. I had not thought that the Lord Jesus must deliver and cleanse me from this sin also. I had not understood that He was with me every day in the inner chamber, 
in his great love, ready to keep and bless me, however sinful and guilty I felt myself to be. I had not supposed that just as he will give all other grace in answer to prayer, so above all and before all, he will bestow the grace of a praying heart. Now get this. What folly to think that all other blessings must come from him, but that prayer, whereon everything else depends, must be obtained by personal effort. You see, even the, even the prayer itself, the desire to pray is, a, is an answer to prayer. It comes from him. We have this idea that we've got to work something up, and if we can work something up, then God will give everything else as a result. No, even the desire to pray, the desire to draw near comes from him. What folly to think that all other blessings must come from him, but that prayer, whereon everything else depends, must be obtained by personal effort. Thank God I am now beginning to understand. The Lord Jesus is himself in the inner chamber, watching over me and holding himself responsible to teach me how to approach the Father. The only thing he demands is that I, with childlike confidence, wait upon him and glorify him. If fear and hesitation still remain... Now this is... He's Andrew Murray now speaking to all of us. No more quotes. If fear and hesitation still remain, I pray you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus and by the unspeakable faithfulness of his tender love... Dare to cast yourselves at his feet. Only believe with your whole heart there is deliverance from the sin of prayerlessness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In his blood and grace, there is complete deliverance from all unrighteousness and from all prayerlessness. Praise be his name forever. So what is he basically saying? He's saying, first of all, you need to repent because prayerlessness is a sin. I mean, it's not just, well, everybody struggles. I mean, it's a sin. Think of the sacrifice. Think of the cost involved on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ to make a way for you to draw near to God. What did it cost him to tear that veil in two? And yet you're going to go on not drawing near and not praying? It's a sin. So confess that sin, but don't despair. Draw near. That's, I mean, that's all he's saying here, and I love it. I mean, he's, it's like, you know, I, Andrew, I'm really struggling with prayer. And he says, well, pray. You need to pray. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. How do you cure prayerlessness? You pray. You draw near, and you confess your prayerlessness. Repent of it, and Christ will teach you how to pray. He'll give grace and mercy to help in time of need even in the midst of prayerlessness.